Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. One of the unique claims of the Bible, as opposed to other religious texts, is the claim of a resurrection. Not just the resurrection of Jesus from the dead after he had been murdered on the cross, but a coming resurrection for all people. At the coming day of judgment, the scripture declares that everyone who has died will be raised again in a physical, corporeal body. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 says, At the time your people will be delivered, everyone whose name is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That claim is repeated several places throughout the Scripture that there's coming a day for a physical resurrection for every person and a resurrection unto judgment or a resurrection unto life. Now, that has been disputed or rejected or in many cases ridiculed and mocked throughout the ages by any number of people. Many people from philosophical dualism just cannot accept the fact that we would spend eternity in physical bodies. They have imagined that everything physical has to be subpar or has to be in some way corrupted or, or uh, unworthy of eternity. And so they have this dualistic view of the world where the, the attempt or the goal of, of the afterlife is to escape this material world. It is to escape the material body It is to go on in all eternity in some sort of spiritual, non-material existence where you, in some form or fashion, just float around some ethereal world. That is their dualistic philosophy of life. For other people, you might say it's more material. Their problem with the resurrection is is more maybe even biological. They just understand the complexities of life. They understand the complexities of life and death. They've lived in the real world. They saw how messy life and death can really be. They know that people don't always die in neat and tidy ways. In some cases, they are consumed, if not from just the basic realities of being buried in the ground where our bodies decompose and they go back, if you will, to the soil from which we then take that soil and fertilize plants and in many cases consume and eat those very plants that are fertilized with that soil. There are, of course, people in much more grotesque ways who are cannibalized very directly at the mouths of other people. But, but then there are others who are, who are killed in all sorts of unseemly ways. They are they're burned, they are quartered, they are, they are brutalized in all these ways that would make it, in some ways, difficult to reconstitute their bodies, at least in a natural sense. In the early centuries of the church, this was a way of mocking Christianity. When they martyred a Christian, the, 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 the Greeks and the Romans would actually take and burn their body and spread their ashes in as far and wide a way as possible as a way of mocking the claim of Christianity to an eventual resurrection. 
But whatever it is, there's always been people who ridiculed the idea that there would be a physical resurrection from the dead. This morning, we come back to Matthew chapter 22, and we encounter one of those groups, and it's actually a group within Judaism. It's a unique group. Among all the Jews, there was one group of people who rejected the idea of a resurrection. Even though it's taught in the Bible, even though it's taught in Daniel and other places very clearly, within Judaism, there was a group known as the Sadducees. And one of the distinct doctrines of the Sadducees is that they denied any concept of a resurrection. We find this in Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 through 33. We find this encounter between this group of Sadducees and Jesus, where Matthew tells us in very plain language that they came asking him a question about the resurrection, even though they themselves didn't accept that doctrine. This is what Matthew says, beginning in verse 23. The same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they ask him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too, the second and third down to the seventh. After all of them, the woman died. Mercifully, we might say. There might have been more brothers. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For she and for all had her. Jesus answered them, You're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, this comes as a challenge to Jesus as he's in the temple here again on his last day of public teaching. You remember he's been here already for uh, a number of hours and he's been teaching and he's been encountering all of these uh, forms of opposition, these groups who are coming and trying to trip him up through various questions. They're determined to undermine and to discredit him. And among them would have been this group, the Sadducees, which is a term for one of the key uh, groups or sects within Judaism. There was the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Zealots and the Essenes. But this particular group, while it was perhaps the smallest of those four sects, there was only, we're told, about a thousand uh, Sadducees. They were one of the most powerful because they controlled the temple primarily. They were the family or they were the uh, sect that uh, had the connection to the high priestly family. In fact, the word Sadducee is probably a transliteration of the Hebrew word Zadokim, which is built on the name Zadok. Zadok was the high priest under the reign of David and of Solomon. And by, uh, by affirmation of God's word, it was through the line of Zadok that all future high priests were to be found. 
And so those who were a part of the Zadokim or the Sadducees were the ones who had a claim to the high priesthood. And having a claim to the high priesthood, they had a central role in dictating the enterprise of the temple, which means that when Jesus had come in at the first part of the week and had cleared out all of the money changers and all of those who were selling uh, sacrificial animals, he had directly attacked their enterprise, their income stream. They were the ones who were hurt the worst by what Jesus had done. And so it was in their interest to discredit him and to dislodge him. But even more so, they would have been afraid that now Jesus, having received so much sort of popular acclaim as he's come to the city, that he might stir up more revolutionary sentiment and maybe even a riot among the people which would provoke a a Roman response and they would come in and they would destroy uh, not only Jesus and his followers, but maybe everyone in Jerusalem and perhaps the temple itself. They were aware of all of that. And so they They had a vested interest to want to come in and essentially uh, discredit and uh, and, uh, uh, dislodge Jesus from his place of popularity with the people. And they decide that they're going to do this by raising the issue of the resurrection. Now, they did this because they had, I'm sure, had some success with this kind of tactic in the past. They no doubt had brought up this kind of question with their... Uh, political uh, and, and religious opponents who were the Pharisees. And this had probably been the kind of question that had stumped the Pharisees and they were convinced that it would be the kind of question that would stump Jesus. It had to do with what is called the leveret or the law of leveret marriage. Levir in Hebrew is the word for the brother of your husband. And the leveret marriage was a law which was uh, dictated in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verse 5, where it says, when brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside of the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and shall perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother. That is, that his name may not be blotted out from among Israel. So this was a law that Moses instituted for a a twofold purpose, really. For the purpose, first of all, of, of making sure that the deceased brother's name is not forgotten. That is to say that his heritage, even his inheritance rights would have been received and passed down to someone um, in the the coming generation. So the firstborn son of of that second marriage would be in the name of the deceased husband, and then all other subsequent children would be in the name of your current husband. That is the law of leveret marriage. And so they come and they ask him this question, which in their minds was all designed to not really gather information They're asking a question, but they're not really seeking out an answer necessarily. They're trying to embarrass Jesus. That's what they're doing. From from a logical standpoint, they are employing what is known as reductio ad ad absurdum. They're they're trying to reduce uh, one of Jesus' claims or his teachings 
to the point of absurdity. They're trying to make him sound absurd by the question that they're asking. They're disguising their unbelief. They're disguising their rejection of Jesus behind the form of a question, uh, a theological question. Some people do this, you know, and we encounter it all the time. They'll come up to you and they'll ask you a question, but they're not really wanting to know the answer. They're just trying to make it seem like you're absurd. They might say, you know, so, so you believe everyone who doesn't think the same way as you do ought to go to hell. As if that is what you really believe. They're, they're, they're not actually asking of the question. They're making a claim. The claim, the implicit claim is that the reason people should suffer in hell is because they disagree with you. But they're not wanting to make that claim Squarely, so they pose it in the form of a question, but the question itself has sort of implications around it, like this is implying what you really believe. Sometimes you find yourself in that situation and you realize people are asking the question, but they're not really making a question, they're not really asking a question, they're making a statement. And so what you want to do is try to just get them to state what they're trying to state rather than hide it behind a question or they come, you know, they come and they say something to you like, well, you just believe all or or maybe they'll ask the question, I should say, uh, what gives you the right to say every other religion is wrong? When in fact, what they're really saying is you're wrong to say one someone else is wrong. And then, of course, you want to say, well, why would you say that? Right. When you, in other words, when you get someone to rephrase their question in the form of a statement, sometimes it becomes more obvious what they're actually trying to say. Well, Jesus does this to some extent. He tries to get behind their question. He tries to go back behind their question to the assumption or the assertion or the statement that they're really trying to make. He, he's trying to help them or try really trying to expose them in what they are asserting here the idea that the resurrection itself is ridiculous that's really what they're saying without saying it they they pose it in this question but the the thing they're trying to assert is the idea of a resurrection Uh, evokes some twisted notion of the world, the world we live in, the world we experience, the, the way we experience it. It cannot make sense, at least the way that we understand everything. They're arguing it just from the experience of marriage itself. People would argue it from biological Uh, reasoning or some other sort of form of argument but that's what they're saying this whole idea of a resurrection is ridiculous your belief system is ridiculous they're trying to embarrass him but their question is of some interest because whether or not you are coming from their perspective there are realities when it comes to the afterlife. There are realities when it comes to the resurrection. There are people who do have multiple marriages, maybe not in a levered marriage, but through other circumstances, sometimes through widowhood, sometimes even through divorce, they find themselves having been in multiple marriages. And it's a real thing for them to wonder if they will encounter or what they would do if they encountered their former spouse in the afterlife. 
particularly if they've remarried. What will that be like? How will I handle that? Uh, how, how is that dynamic going to play itself out? For these, for these Sadducees, I mean, they're just trying to make this all out into a, a sort of a cartoonish picture, something that might look good on paper but doesn't make sense of the, the, the realities of the life that we live. But Jesus, he just goes behind all that tactic and he addresses their question, but he really goes right to what is their assumption about the resurrection. And he exposes them, as I said. He, he answers them with two basic responses, exposing fundamental mistakes that they have in their rejection of the resurrection. They fail to discern the power of God and they lack the skill to understand God's word. That's basically what he says there in verse 29 and 30. You're wrong because you know neither the, the scriptures nor the power of God. That's his two responses. That, that, is, that is their failure, if you will, their flawed reasoning behind rejecting the resurrection. Two of these flawed reasonings, beginning in, in verse 29 and 30 there, with a failure to understand the power of God. They, they basically had failed to understand how God in his power would raise men and women up in such a different state that they could not comprehend it if they were to think about it in an analogous way from this world. He says in verse 30, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Not that they are angels. You and I are not angels and never will be angels. Angels are not created in the image of God. You and I are created in the image of God. And so even in our resurrected bodies, we're not angels, but we'll be like the angels in the sense that we never die and in the sense that we never marry. Now, if you want to understand what Jesus is saying here in a little more clarity, you could, you could look at it through Luke's account of this same incident because Luke gives us a little bit more detail in terms of Jesus' logic. He answers there in Luke 20, verse 34, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they're equal to the angels of God. So, so the reason he says that they're not married or given in marriage is because they cannot die anymore. In other words, they don't marry because they don't die. And because they never die, there's no need for procreation. And because there's no need for procreation, there's no need for marriage. That's his logic. That's what he's saying. Is a fundamental fact of the resurrection that we're born again, uh, we're raised again, I should say, never to die. We're raised to eternal life. There's no more death. And this is critical to answering their question because the levered marriage, the whole idea of levered marriage was for what? For procreation. That's at the heart of it. It was for the purpose of raising up an offspring for your unfortunate husband who died without a child or without a heritage. This was fundamental to a levirate marriage. You and I 
tend to think about marriage primarily through the lens of romance. But in the law of leveret marriage, it wasn't romance, it was responsibility that was at the core. It was the responsibility, it was the service that you would render to your deceased husband or maybe to your deceased brother. You weren't, you weren't placed in or you weren't drawn to a relationship with someone because you fell in love with them because there was some romantic connection. You were placed in that relationship because you had a familial connection and you felt a responsibility in that. And Jesus is saying that in the world of the resurrection, there's no need for that because there's no more death. And so this kind of a marriage is, is out of place. It doesn't matter. In fact, the institution of marriage is just one of several institutions that God has ordained that will no longer be necessary in the resurrection. Everything will be transformed. Everything will be made new. If they had given serious thought to the resurrection and to the nature of the resurrection, they would have understood that. If they had given serious thought to the power of God and everything that was associated with that, they wouldn't have come to this flawed understanding of the resurrection. But he's telling them they failed to comprehend the power of what's going to take place in the transformation of the resurrection. Because in the afterlife, your life isn't going to be like this. See, they were thinking about the resurrection the way that pagans think about the afterlife. You know, when a pagan died... In the ancient world, when they buried them, they would bury them with all these trinkets and all all this equipment. Whenever we unearth the tombs of the pharaohs, for example, we found that they were buried not only with all kinds of treasures or before they were looted, they had all kinds of treasures, but along with them, they were buried with their housekeepers and with their stewards and with their chefs and even with their concubines. Because the assumption was that they would resume that old life in the afterlife the way they lived it here. So the the assumption was that if you're a king in this life, you'll be a king in the next life. If you're a slave in this life, you'll be a slave in the next life. If you're married in this life, you'll be married in the next life. And all that stuff just carries over. So they just buried everything in the tomb with the person. They didn't understand the nature of God and the nature of the resurrection. But it's completely different. The resurrection is a powerful transformation. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In verse 42, he presents a number of contrasts. For, as a matter of fact, he says, as to the resurrection of the dead, what is sown perishable is raised imperishable. That is to say, we're raised with a a different kind of body that, that isn't prone to Uh, decay and death and disease it is durable in the sense that it lasts forever he says what is sown in dishonor is raised in glory that is to say that it is born into this world in such a way that it is taken up with dishonorable pursuits it is taken up sometimes with sinful pursuits but in the in the resurrected world it will be raised to glorious pursuits It's sown, he says, in weakness, but is raised in power. 
meaning that there are going to be resources that are available to us in the resurrected body that aren't available to us in this body. We're going to have capabilities, not just in terms of physical strength, but in mental uh, capacity and in, and, and, and all of the immaterial capacities. We're going to have a power and, and a capability that's not known to us, not even imaginable to us in this world. But most importantly, he says it's sown a natural body and it's raised a spiritual body. It's raised a spiritual body, not in the sense of being an immaterial body. Everything in Scripture is clear. It's not a phantom or a spirit. It is a material body. But it's not natural in the sense that this body is natural. This body is born of this world and is uh, is cursed with this world. It's natural in the sense that it's still is corrupted by this world and by the curse. And so consequently, you and I struggle. We struggle not only against disease and and pain, but we struggle against temptation and sin and corruption that comes to us from our own hearts and also from the world around us. We do battle with that stuff all the time. In that sense, our body is natural, but our new body is not that way. It is sown spiritual in in we would say body and spirit, in material and immaterial, in every way, our resurrected bodies are new, are new creations. We, are no, we no longer struggle with a heart that is hardened against God's Word. We no longer struggle with a, a propensity towards sin. We no longer struggle with the weaknesses of temptation. Our resurrected bodies, we are complete spiritual people, body and spirit. Now, if you're a believer, if you have trusted Christ in this world, you've already tasted a little bit of that. Because the Bible says if you're in Christ, you're a new creature. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. That is the definition of a Christian. A Christian is someone who has been born again, which means that in our spirits, we have been given new hearts and new minds with new desires and new pursuits. We want to obey God. We want to honor God. We want to do what pleases God, but we are still entrapped, if you will. We're still somewhat incarcerated in this unredeemed flesh meaning that we still struggle with our physical bodies. We still struggle even with our physical minds. And consequently, we can't always serve God the way we want to. We're spiritual people, but it hasn't fully been revealed what we will be in our resurrected bodies. At that point, we will be spiritual through and through. There will be a, a transformation of who we are in body and spirit. And those new bodies and those new spirits set free from all the frailties of this body will be free with new purposes, with new ambitions, with new pursuits, with new motivations in ways that it would be hard for us to even comprehend right now. And Jesus is saying, you, you haven't really taken time to think about all that. You haven't really taken time to ponder all that. There will be such a transformation that you cannot draw such a correspondence from this life to the next the way your question assumes. Now, I would just note along with R.T. France 
that for a lot of people, this uh, statement by Jesus is a little disturbing because some people have found their deepest joys in earthly life in the special bond of married relationships. And they are dismayed to hear that this most precious of relationship will be left behind at the resurrection. But I think it's important to note that what is left behind is not the relationship. It's just the marriage. The, the, the institution of marriage. There's nothing that he says here that would imply that you're prevented from enjoying all the friendships and all the joys of all the personalities of all the people who fill your life now. There's just no need for marriage, which brings with it an exclusive covenant, an exclusivity in its relationship. That, that is what's unique about the covenant of marriage. But in the resurrected world where you are fully transformed and now find your full satisfaction in the love of Christ and through that love, you now love not only Christ more, but you love other people more in ways deeper now than you have ever known. Everything is transformed. And because of all that, there's no longer a need for any exclusivity in relationships. There's no longer any place for envy or jealousy. There's no longer a place for selfishness. None of that stuff exists anymore. And there's no longer a need for procreation. Those kinds of those kinds of, of realities that are a part of this life and this world and this fallen body no longer exists. So that you are free to know and love people at a deeper level than you've ever known. In other words, this is not changed by subtraction. It's changed by addition. The new capacities... The new realities in your heart and mind lead to deeper, more meaningful relationships than you could ever know, all by God's transforming power. So in the end, Jesus is saying, you, you, you guys, you're rejecting the resurrection, not because of the resurrection, but because you just don't understand God and you don't understand his power. But there's another reason, he says, behind their flawed reason, behind their flawed rejection of the resurrection, and it is there in verse 31, is that they fail to understand the word of God. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not a God of the dead, but of the living. Now, he's driving home this point from one of the most fundamental passages of the Bible. We're told that the Sadducees didn't accept all of the Jewish scripture. They limited themselves to just the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, as we would say. And so uh, because of that, uh, they didn't believe that the first five books of the Bible taught a resurrection, but Jesus takes them right into the very scripture that they would hold to right into the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, to one of the most well-known passages in Exodus chapter 3, the passage that we commonly refer to as the burning bush, the place where Moses met with God. And the most memorable 
element of that passage is the, the, the declaration of God's name. You may remember this when God was giving Moses his, his assignment to go and to communicate to Pharaoh that he needs to let the children of Israel go from their captivity. And Moses says, well, who am I supposed to say has sent me? And God responds, I am that I am. He, dis- he responds with this declaration of his name as essentially the eternal one, the ever-present one, the one who has no beginning and no end. And not I was, not I will be, but I am. In other words, the entire passage hinges on the tense of a verb. The nature of God and His character is all embedded in that. And yet in the middle of that, there's also another statement of revelation to Moses. It is a statement that Jesus quotes here. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the, and the God of Jacob. Not I was, but I am. He's telling Moses, among other things here, that, uh, that he is... And in his current state, the God of these three patriarchs, in other words, for God, they are still worshiping, they are still benefiting, they are still trusting, they are still obeying, he is still their God. This, this is essentially what we sometimes call grammatical exegesis. It is, is deriving meaning from the grammar of a passage, which is all, it's at the heart of all true interpretation. Looking at the basic grammar of a passage, that's what he's doing here. And he's, he's just taking note of the tense, if you will, of a verb, or in this case, the implied verb in Hebrew, the present tense verb. And he's saying to these guys, you haven't even read closely the very scripture that you claim to be holding to. The scripture that you're supposedly asking questions about. The very scripture which, by the way, you're supposed to be upholding as the, as the guardians of the temple. You're, you're the, the, the ones who claim the high priesthood and the heritage of all that. And so it would have been on them not only to maintain the sacrificial system and to carry out the sacrifices. It would have been on them to guard the doctrines of of the Old Testament, of, of Israel. And so these people who claim to be so central and vital to Israel's religion, who, who claim to be the experts, if you will, in God's law, haven't even understood the Bible, which again is a problem for so many people who uh, reject Christianity or they reject the gospel or they resist Jesus Christ or the message of Jesus Christ while they're making the claim of knowing the Bible. I mean, I encounter people like that all the time. I will, uh, I will try to talk to them about the Bible and they'll say, well, I know that, I know that. Or you'll encounter an unbeliever and they'll say, I read, you know, I read the Bible, I read all these religious texts. Well, reading it doesn't mean you understand it. It doesn't mean that you've comprehended it just because you read it. These guys had read it. They had probably read it a number of times. They probably had taught it. In fact, they were quoting what many people might consider an obscure law in the Leveret marriage. They knew 
the Bible in that sense, but they had not comprehended it by, by evidence of the fact that they are trying to, in this situation, build a doctrine or discredit a doctrine, the doctrine of the resurrection, from a law that has nothing to do with the resurrection. You understand that? The Leverett marriage law, that law was not given for the purpose of teaching you something about the resurrection. It was not the appropriate place to go to try to, to comprehend or to adjudicate or to solve issues of the resurrection. This is what people do all the time, though. They, they go and they take a passage of Scripture that has nothing to do with their topic, and they'll try to build a whole doctrine on it. Well, Jesus shows them exactly the way you handle the Scripture. You go right to the key passages, the core passages that reveal who God is, that reveal the nature of God, the nature of His relationship to His people, and you build your doctrines off of that. And so that's what He's doing here. He's, he's showing them how God makes this claim to be not just the God of Moses, but He's also the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. These guys were silenced. In fact, Luke says it. They were silenced. They couldn't answer him. They, they really had not encountered. They had gotten used to intimidating people or embarrassing people with their gotcha question. But they really weren't ready for someone to give them this kind of response. And so they just sort of quietly leave the scene. We're told here, though, that when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So there was, there was, in one sense, embarrassment on the part of the Sadducees. Tables had been turned on them. In another sense, there was astonishment on the part of the crowd. But the sad thing is, there was no repentance. There was no repentance, which was the most important thing. That was the response that was necessary. People who hear the word of God clearly explained like that, when they realize that they have misunderstood Christ and misunderstood Christianity this whole time, the right response is to be mournful of your ignorance, to be sorrowful for your mistakes, to be receptive to the gospel of Christ, and to be repentant for the ways that you have rejected God. That's really what should have happened. But all they do is give an emotional response. They are astonished. Well, we know in just two days, those very same people who are listening in astonishment will be standing in a crowd in just two days, watching as Jesus is beaten and crucified. We don't know if they sat quietly, capitulating, or we don't know if they were adding their voice to the cries to crucify him. But what we do know is that they didn't repent. The city of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, I should say, wasn't changed. It wasn't transformed. When Jesus does eventually get crucified and when he is raised from the dead and ascends back into heaven, we're told there is just 120 disciples gathered in an upper room. The vast majority of people who encountered Jesus this day did not believe. Don't let that be your mistake. Do not let that be your mistake. 
You have objections and questions and things that you've thrown up and you've stumped people and you've had all these Bible debates or religious debates or whatever it might be and you think along the way that you have uh, sort of justified your position and your resistance or you've heard interesting things and you have had your mind enlightened. It doesn't really matter if at the end of the day you don't repent. Because you, like every other person, are going to be raised from the dead. But as Daniel said, some of you who are in Christ, you'll be raised to eternal life. Everyone else, Daniel says, you'll be raised. But you'll be raised to face God in judgment for eternal contempt. Eternal punishment. This is a resurrection. This is what the Bible teaches. Whether you accept it or not. Whether you're willing to acknowledge it or not. Jesus came to affirm it. He came to prove it with his own resurrection. He came to call you to faith and repentance. So that you'll be ready for the day of your resurrection. Father, we're grateful for our Savior who demonstrated so clearly through His teaching and so powerfully through His resurrection the salvation that has come to us through the gospel. I pray for those who are here today who are hearing this message, maybe for the first time, they're thinking about the resurrection. I pray that those thoughts wouldn't quickly fade. I pray that they would think about Your power They would think about your word. And in light of all those things, I pray that they would repent, that they would believe, and that they would follow Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.